What's good, everybody? I'm here with another edition of BK Talks, and it will be a wrestling-centric episode. So, I feel like it's important for me to offer up this disclaimer before I begin. I know that the pro wrestling internet community, the IWC, the internet wrestling community, can be very polarizing, very segmented, very tribalistic, so that a lot of the opinions that we hear and we see... They're kind of couched in biases, whether it be pro one company or anti the next. We see a lot of that, but I just wanted to make it known from my perspective that any opinions that I have are just rooted purely in me being a wrestling fan. I don't identify as a, an AEW fan or a WWE fan because I honestly and truly want to see all the companies do well because I, I do watch content from everybody that I have access to uh, <clears throat> with time permitting. Um, I mean, I watch every weekly show uh, religiously the way I did when I was a younger fan, but I do keep up with all the stuff that's going on and I do try to stay on top of everything. But it is important for me to offer up that disclaimer so you can know that I'm not coming from any kind of perspective. If you hear any opinions that might knock one company or the other. Now, over the past couple of weeks, we had a whole lot of interesting news and a lot of different things were happening in the world of professional wrestling. And I feel like I wanted to give my little two cents in the podcast form. Uh, the first thing I want to talk about is the uh, rumored signings of uh, CM Punk and Brian Danielson, formerly known as Daniel Bryan, uh, with AEW. Now, a lot of people are excited about the, these uh, potential signings. A lot of anticipation has kind of been built. Uh, in full disclosure here, uh, me and a group of my friends here in New York, uh, we're going to be going to that Arthur Ashe Stadium show uh, on September 22nd, the Dynamite show. And the big rumor, the big anticipation is kind of building towards Daniel Bryan or Brian Danielson appearing and debuting at that show. I mean... Why not? It's, it's kind of historic in that it's your first big event in New York City, you know, uh, which is one of the big wrestling towns in the United States. And uh, basically, for the longest time, it's a town that's been associated with the WWE and WWF and you know, prior to that, you know, basically that lineage. This has been classically, you know, seen as a WWF town, although <clears throat> we've seen WCW run shows out in Long Island at, in the Uniondale uh, at the Nassau Coliseum back in the day. Uh, this is pretty much New York's, uh, New York is pretty much WWF's territory. Um, I'm not saying, I'm not going to jump into the narrative that this is somehow a challenge to WWF's dominance in New York because I feel like people run with those things to try and trigger fans to get into arguments and stuff like that. But I do feel like it's historic. I do feel like it's a good sign that they were able to sell like 15000 during the pre-sale because that's, that's how uh, my friend copped the tickets because he got like uh, about six of us are supposed to be going to the show. Uh, we're going just to, to have a good experience, have a good time. We're all wrestling fans. We're all, you know, want to see some good stuff happen on the show. Um, two of those friends 
they went to one of the very last live events. Uh, I think it was the Barclays Center Raw leading up to WrestleMania. So I think that was one of the last few events that happened uh, before everything kind of shut down uh, due to the pandemic. Now, <clears throat> to get back to the uh, rumors, I personally feel like Brian Danielson and CM Punk signing with AEW are very good, sound business decisions for Tony Khan and for AEW. Uh, in the case of Brian Danielson, he built up a lot of goodwill with wrestling fans, WWE fans more specifically, during his time in the WWE. Um, he organically became a main event level player, uh, became more than just that wrestling machine that people identified him as or kind of pigeonholed him as during the, the Indies, while he was in the Indies, I should say, and became a very likable and engaging character. And he built a nice, nice career, Hall of Fame worthy career. Uh, and he, he met his wife, built a family. So like he, he can look back at his time in the WWE and smile and be proud of himself. And fans should be able to look back at his time in the WWE and be happy that he had a, a, an awesome career. Now he's at the stage where he's come back from injuries. He's battled all kinds of issues and problems. And now he's in a position where he has a little bit of leverage and a little bit of uh, freedom to make the decision that he wants. And as a wrestling fan, I think, and as a wrestling fan and as a fan of a particular wrestler, that's all we should ask for. We should ask for them to have the kind of career uh, where they can, you know, in the end, start making decisions that they want to make that aren't really bound by financial or anything like that. They, they can kind of put themselves in a position to do the things that they want to do to close out the career in a way that they best see fit. So in that regard, I, I got to wish him well if he does indeed sign with AEW. And in the case of CM Punk, <clears throat> he's a guy who's uh, over the years, I want to say some of that goodwill has kind of eroded because in the immediate immediate aftermath of him leaving the WWF or WWE, uh, he had some goodwill because he came out almost like on a scorched earth type path where he laid out a lot of the things he disliked about his time during the WWE, uh, especially with the the uh, medical stuff and and some of the booking stuff and his feelings towards, I think, Triple H and the power structure there. And of course, with the growing anti-WWE sentiment and a lot of fans becoming disillusioned, I mean, a lot of people rolled with them. You know, they, they, they appreciated him coming out with those interviews and stuff like that and hashing out his, his feelings because it kind of lends itself to how some, how many fans feel about the WWE now. Uh, following his wrestling career, he attempted to do MMA. That didn't really work out so well for him. And he hasn't, to my knowledge, uh, been participating in wrestling uh, regularly since his uh, departure from the WWE. So he has a lot of, uh, he'll probably have a big impact in terms of the interest. Because to this day, you'll hear people with the CM Punk chants and stuff like that. And uh, 
you know, he, he'll definitely have a lot of fans, especially within that AEW circle, who want to hear him get back on the mic because they, they anticipate a whole lot of heat towards the WWE. And, uh, you know, he has a gift of gab. He can talk on the mic. He, he's, he's easily one of the more entertaining uh, mic performers in professional wrestling uh, during his prime years, of course. Uh, and the anticipated debut for him would be in Chicago at the All Out pay-per-view. That's his hometown. Uh, he sent out like one of these cryptic uh, social media messages playing serious that from the Alan Parsons project, a song that's you know probably most associated with the Chicago Bulls, which oddly enough is my favorite team, despite being a born and bred Brooklynite from Brooklyn, New York. I'm a, I'm a Bulls fan to this day. Uh, so him debuting at All Out, Daniel Bryan debuting at the Arthur Ashe Stadium, September 22nd, Dynamite episode. Those would be two two really big signings for AEW. Two signings that have the potential to draw eyes to their show that might not normally uh, give them a chance. In the case of CM Punk, probably the curiosity of seeing what he looks like, what he sounds like at this time. And in the case of Daniel Bryan, the man just drew, he just drew a lot of goodwill and people honestly want to see this man do well and be prosperous and successful. So, uh, I anticipate, and I'm not even a big ratings number guy. I feel like that's one of the debates and discussions in pro wrestling that I could do without because I mean, when we watch almost every other TV show, we don't really care about what the number is as long as we're entertained, but that's become a talking point. I would say since the mid and late nineties, that that's become the one of the barometers and one of the things that fans use as a gauge of how good something is, which I don't know. I don't know what we're doing in that, in that case. But just for the sake of uh, discussion here, uh, I think for AEW, from that business perspective, it does have a, a potential to bring over a lot of eyes that probably wouldn't normally tune in just on the strength of the curiosity and the goodwill uh, from those two guys. Now, the honest truth and the honest uh, reality is that the AEW would then have to craft entertaining and engaging stories for each guy. And if we're being 100% honest with the previous big surprises like Christian, like Sting, the follow through didn't really sustain the audience. You know, fans would come and show up for that big... Uh, debut and then they will slowly kind of drift back to like their standard average numbers which was still pretty good good enough for tnt to renew them and give them additional shows and stuff like that so don't don't make this out to be like me you know sh throwing shade towards aew or the numbers or anything like that but i'm just honestly speaking just saying that the debuts are great because the debuts will always will always draw the attention people are curious but then it's what you do following that that makes it a big deal. Because look at uh look back at WCW. <clears throat> as a as a young wrestling fan, I watched WCW, I watched WWF, I watched everything. So a guy jumping from one company to the other wouldn't be the thing that made me switch to that show. It because I, I had like a context for who they were prior to they prior to them getting there. So there wasn't really the the impetus for me to to make the switch or anything like that but there are a lot of fans who were 
and still are like kind of brand exclusive fans who will make the switch. Back in 94, Hulk Hogan had the big ticker tape parade stuff that happened with WCW announcing his uh, signing. And it was a huge announcement. You know, as a, a lifelong wrestling fan, I was about 12 years old at that point, but I was watching from like age five. You know, I grew up like being into Hulkamania and loving the Hulk Hogan character. You know, not knowing much about Hulk Hogan, the Terry Bollea, the person behind the Hulk Hogan character, but loving the character. So when he signed, it was like a huge shock to me. You know, one day, one day and one minute you remember him uh, wrestling and losing the Yokozuna. I didn't see that pay-per-view live, but of course, back in the day on the, on the TV shows, you got the still photos of what happened. You figure, yo, Hogan's going to be coming back because he always comes back. He always gets beaten up by the big guy and he comes back. But Hogan didn't come back. He ended up filming a TV show, Thunder in Paradise, a show that I, full disclosure, I liked. I liked that show. Back In, in hindsight, probably was not the best show, kind of cheesy. But it also featured Sting, which was my favorite WCW guy. And to this day, I call him my 1 or 1A favorite wrestler alongside Booker T. Uh, but... You know, you see him filming the TV show, and then all of a sudden you got the big uh, announcement of him coming to WCW around that same time period, and it was huge. It was groundbreaking, but it didn't really change everything. It didn't shift the whole landscape of professional wrestling either. Uh, so early on, Hogan was kind of doing the Hulkamania 2.0, complete with a almost a knockoff version of Real American, the American-made theme song, complete with fighting some of the same guys that he fought in the WWF, uh, complete with fighting big giant monsters and doing the stuff that he did in WWF. And for me, it was cool. I was still young, you know. I was still pretty much into it, even as a as a teen and a preteen and a teen. I was still all about that Hulkamania thing, man. Uh, but of course. You're playing in front of a new audience at that time. You're, you're going to the WCW, which is regionally a Southern-based promotion. A lot of them have these deep connections to that, to that classic NWA style, and they ain't trying to see none of this Hulkamania stuff. So you start seeing the booze and all of that come up. Then Hulk Hogan does his little dark side phase. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if it was like a test, test run for what eventually became him turning heel and going with the NWO, not saying that they had a plan to do the NWO in 95 when he was doing all the, the dark side Hogan stuff, but uh, he was kind of this good guy, but he was doing bad stuff. He had to like dip into the dark side to combat the dungeon and all that stuff. But uh, I was still very much into that character too, even though critically, you know, looking back, a lot of people don't really like it. The monster truck, battle thing we got that pay-per-view live taped that too but uh yeah that 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 Hulk Hogan period didn't really kill it the way that the NWO stuff started so just because you sign a major talent and and, and I mentioned Hogan but they also signed Macho Man during that same time period they signed a lot of guys who were stars associated with the WWF Probably due to Hogan, because, I mean, Hogan has, probably has a lot of friends uh, that he helped get on. Um, but, yeah, that, that stuff didn't really turn WCW into what 
people often remember from the the Monday Night War era. Uh, but you know, you know what did an engaging storyline did, and Scott Hall showing up that was a big su- surprise. You know, at that point in my fandom, I was associating him with the Razor Ramon gimmick, even though I knew he was a diamond stud. And, and I bet fans who were older than me remember him in the AWA with his Tom Selleck mustache. You know, but that debut alone wasn't wouldn't be the thing that automatically keeps an audience. So Scott Hall debuted in an interesting way at a, at a time where we didn't really know what was going on in pro wrestling. Uh, we didn't know his contract was up. Because the last I saw that dude, man, he was still Razor Ramon. And now all of a sudden, oh, wow, Razor Ramon's on, on TV. And then with his promo, he kind of left it a little cryptic. He didn't really know what was going on. And then he said he had had some friend a friend coming on. And next thing you know, you got Big Daddy Cool Diesel, Nash. A guy who I associated with that character at that time, but I also recognized even then that, yo, that was Vinny Vegas. That was Oz and WCW before he became Diesel. Uh, <clears throat> but that alone, the, the two debuts, that's not enough to really sustain what would become. They ended up creating a really engaging storyline, like where where people didn't really know where this thing was going to be headed. That's where that excitement, that feeling of the unknown, that nitro, that prime era nitro feeling of like cliffhangers, almost like a great book or a great movie. uh, That that kind of started where we had an engaging storyline. That's what kept the audiences. That's what made people flip the channels. That's what made people, uh, you know, hang on to see what was going on. So to bring it back to modern day, Daniel Bryan and CM Punk debuting will definitely spike numbers for AEW and spike interest. Now, the main thing is how they proceed going forward. They're going to have to create good storylines, good angles, and it can't just be the dream match circle, the dream match circuit, in my opinion. Uh, you're going to have to create some very compelling reasons for these guys to be wrestling. <clears throat> now, in, in the case of both guys, I don't think they really had matches against anybody that's on this current AEW roster. So everything is a f- clean and fresh slate. You have the potential for all kinds of fresh matches, and, and some of those will be like dream scenarios and stuff like that. However... You're going to have to find ways to sustain the interest because you can't have Daniel Bryan or Brian Danielson show up one week and then not really be a part of the show in some kind of form for like three, four weeks at a time. You got to find something interesting for him to do. I mean, same with CM Punk. I mean, that man don't even have to wrestle because he's so talented as a uh, talker that you can have him talk every week if or every couple of weeks or every other week. Or, you know, just have him be some kind of consistent presence on the show or you run the risk of having these kind of spikes and dips uh, that they have whenever someone new pops up because we get a lot of surprises in AEW a lot of uh, surprise signings a lot of surprise returns and debuts and stuff of that like but then like in the case of Sting he really doesn't do much afterwards and then the the kind of interest that you had in Sting when he first shows up kind of diminishes and depreciates over time uh, and 
with CM Punk and Daniel Bryan, I think it might be a little harder because those guys carry the kind of modern day more recent interest i guess you would say uh but i still think that that could happen like if you don't do anything compelling with cm punk and and brian danielson the fans will tune in and then they'll kind of slowly kind of drift back to the norm it might be a a higher norm because maybe you hold some of those guys some of the new eyes that you acquire uh, to watch some of the other characters that you have on the show uh, but it'll still kind of drift back instead of just continually having this kind of inclined uh, progression. Uh, but overall, I got to say it again, like if the if the rumors are true, then these are two very good, potentially strong signings for AEW. Now I'm going to move on to my next topic. All right. So for this topic, I'm going to discuss something that I don't think it really caught a lot of. Uh, steam, but it was discussed by some people that I saw on social media, and that's Tony Khan's uh, message message to the crowd following uh, the most recent episode of Dynamite. And uh, I'll say this much: Tony Khan is not really to me. He comes off kind of awkward in a way, like whenever he does kind of speak publicly. And I'm not holding that against him. Because a lot of people would be very nervous and awkward speaking in front of large crowds, especially uh, in that kind of a forum. But he, as the as an on-screen character, I, I can see why he doesn't really want to do that in AEW. Because uh, he doesn't feel like a natural. He doesn't feel like he has that naturally charismatic personality. Now, to get to the actual content of what he said during that uh, clip that I saw. looked like it was recording on a cell phone. <clears throat> He essentially was preparing the fans in attendance for the Dark Elevation tapings that were happening right after, I believe it was happening right after the uh, Dynamite event, uh, the actual TV show that, that people saw that night. Um, they record what is essentially like the preliminary shows of the past, like the WWF Superstars or WCW Worldwide type matches and stuff like that, where you get your... Younger talents, some matches, you, and in this case for AEW, you use it as a almost like a talent showcase, like to scout guys that you might be able to bring on later on, which I think is a really good thing. I personally, full disclosure, I really don't watch Dark or Dark Elevation uh, time constraints, but it, I do like the concept. I do agree with having that type of thing, and I do agree in principle with it existing. Now, uh, Tony Khan kind of made a statement in that uh, message that could be interpreted at minimum as at, at, all right, at most you can say it's another shot at the WWE at the very least you can say that it shows that he has WWE on the brain when he probably shouldn't and I'm, I'm kind of lean towards the latter I don't really take it as a shot per se like I grew up during an era where companies were definitely taking shots whether they were subliminal or direct and blunt so I honestly I don't mind wrestling companies taking shots, but I will say this in the case of AEW, it feels like all right. Let me let me backtrack a little bit. When WCW and WWF were taking shots at each other very directly, they were very much locked into a heated uh, competition for for viewers and and their slice of the market share in pro wrestling. And they were on TV, head-to-head, head, uh, for, for a good portion of that. Uh, 
Uh, ECW was kind of like the little brother trying to make its way, but you could make the argument that it had some some kind of beefs because some of its talents were guys that left one of those two companies and they felt screwed over or uh, guys that, you know, they were like the counterculture brand anyway. So that it, it seemed like a natural thing for them to uh, make those shots, even though even without taking the shots, ECW would stand out because its presentation and its content were vastly different from what you saw uh, on, on the other two major United States promotions. So I'm not a stranger to this kind of thing. Uh, Eddie Kingston not too long ago had another a similar thing where he said something that could be uh, taken as shots at the WWE, in particular their locker room and the heart and stuff like that of the locker room. But back to Tony Khan here. I don't really think it was necessary for him to mention the Performance Center at all. I feel like if you are hyping up the fans to get them ready to see the young talent that you're about to showcase on Dark and Dark Elevation, I mean, you know you don't have an official uh, performance center, center uh, for your company. The fans know you don't have like an official performance center. You have the, the uh, nightmare factory that you can uh, groom beginners and that they eventually... If once they're good enough, they can make it to Dark, and then they kind of have a pipeline through QT Marshall and Cody to the AEW roster. So you don't really have an official official performance center, but you do have pipelines that you can draw from, uh, like as far as the training school and as far as the indies. Fans know that. You know that. So for me, there's no real need to bring up the performance center at all, like, the way I might have handled something like that is, like, yo, the show is over. You guys were treated to a great night of entertainment, but it's not over. We're about to showcase some of the finest young talent across the country here on Dynamite and then do what he did, list off Jungle Boy and Eddie Kingston and, and, and the like like that. Like The Performance Center thing, in my mind, indicates that Tony Khan and that many people within the AEW circle very much see themselves within the context of what the WWE... They frame themselves within the context of what the WWE is doing, as opposed to just kind of running their own race and doing what they do, letting the content speak for itself. Like, the fans already... The fans who rock with you already really, really, really rock with you. Like, that diehard AEW fan base, they're not really into the WWE at all. And I'm guessing that's why they take the shots, because it's kind of red meat, almost the, the kind of stuff that you would say at a political rally. But I feel like for Tony Khan and stuff like that, <clears throat> eventually you're going to need some of these WWE fans to come over and give you a look to continue to grow the fan base. Because I think that super devoted, hardcore pro wrestling fan base is kind of a finite number. And I feel like they, they got all of those already. Like the people who are going to watch New Japan, the people who are going to watch... Uh, GCW and the Indies and stuff like that are all probably already watching AEW. And right now, for them to try and grow a little bit more and gain a little more traction, you're going to need some of these WWE fans to to try and jump over to the channel. And, and they're not going to jump over and give up WWE because they like the WWE. There are people, I mean, I know it's shocking for some people to believe, 
that there are people who still very much enjoy the content that WWE produces. Although the internet, if you look at certain segments of the internet wrestling community, you might believe that's impossible. But it's not impossible. Like, people still enjoy the WWE content. And they, at this point, still have the larger market share. They have the larger fan base to draw from. And I've, I've heard people say these kinds of comments and shots make it less likely for them to want to see AEW for, for whatever reason. And, and that's, for, that's their prerogative. So I think the roster, the EVPs, Tony Khan, they, they got to keep that in mind, too. That, yeah, in some respects, you're competing against the WWE, but you're not in head-to-head competition. So you can run your race. <clears throat> like prior to September, I think it was September 5th, 1995. Prior to September 5th, 1995, you really didn't have much direct competition between WCW and the WWF, aside from the times where they definitely counter-programmed against each other. They definitely did have periods of time where they counter-programmed. But like in terms of a regular, consistent, head-to-head thing, nah, they, they and at least in my childhood, and my early fandom, they all they each occupied their own specific time slot in in my fandom. Like I would I could watch both and not miss anything. And being that NXT moved off of Wednesdays and they moved on to Tuesdays, AEW is alone on Wednesday. You have the wrestling audience right there. You're gonna want some of these WWF fans but I keep saying WWF. Some of these WWE fans to come over to your show and give you a look. But if you're going to keep slandering the thing that they like, they're probably less likely to give you a look. You know, so I feel like if you're going to take shots, take your shots, make, be creative with it. But I don't really see the need to do so right now, at least, because you're not really competing. You're not in a head to head spot competing. You're, you're on different nights. You both draw pretty well for what you're doing on your respective nights despite everyone pointing to the declining raw number those raw numbers are still like the highest that that network has and they're still among the highest on cable tv every week just like uh dynamite is one of the highest num one of the highest rated things on wednesday nights so like you you both are doing pretty well despite all of the doom and gloom and all of the other talk that e- each side says about each other because every time the the aew number goes down people run and jump all over that like they're going to fold tomorrow and that's not going to happen. And same thing with the AEW fans harping about these raw numbers and SmackDown numbers whenever they decline. Like, yo, they, they, both of these pro, both of these television properties are pretty safe at this point and there's no need to really go all in and go hard about some of these uh doomsday scenarios for either side. But back to the Tony Khan Con, uh, comments. I feel like that performance center line, while not uh, a big deal, it does indicate that they view themselves like in the shadow of WWE, and they don't. They don't really have to. They can. They're young. They're a new company. You can run your own race for a while, and then once you start, you know, building up the fan base, and then you can potentially put your show opposite SmackDown or opposite Raw, which are the the two legacy products of two more well-known properties for the WWE, then you can probably step up that game to, to draw more contrast between yourself and the WWE. But at this point, I see those things as red meat for the audience, and it all it does is just reinforce what your audience already feels. 
It doesn't really add anything to the to the experience or add anything to the audience. Uh, because a fan like me, like I'm, I really don't care. <laughs> like I'm not, I'm not rah rah pro WWE. I'm not rah rah anti WWE. I'm not rah rah waving the all elite banner and nothing like that. So like saying that stuff to me is not gonna get any real like reaction or charge me up in any kind of way. Like just make the shows interesting. Now when I was a little younger and I saw the shots back and forth, I found those kind of entertaining because like, yo, these guys are really going at it. But again, if you look back, they were very much engaged in a in an on screen war. And growing up in my, my teen years, of course, ECW was that countercultural product and everybody wants to be rebellious. That that kind of felt all right. It, and it worked for their audience, but ultimately it didn't really grow their audience any, in any considerable way. Even going to national TV, um, you know, they tried to draw the contrast and stuff, but they did tone down uh, some of the content. Um, but... Right now, to me, I don't think there's a real need for it. And uh, eventually, I'm hoping that Tony Khan and the roster kind of pull back a little bit because it does feel very frequent, especially if you're not going to... If you're not going to go challenge Monday Night Raw head-to-head directly, it makes no sense to, like, to do some of this stuff. And it also doesn't make sense for fans to compare the ratings across nights because they're not really competing against each other. Uh, No more than a basketball game that happens on... Monday, I mean, on, on Wednesday is competing against a game that happens on Thursday on two completely different networks. That's not really, from my understanding, because I'm not going to act like I'm a rating ex- expert, but from my understanding and from listening to people who say that they work in that industry, they don't really look at ratings in the way that the wrestling fans are kind of interpreting ratings. Uh, but ultimately, just run your own race. You're going to eventually build your audience that way. And then when you feel like you've gotten to a position of strength where you can do, you can, I mean, say what you want to say about TNA, but it's pretty, pretty ballsy to try and put impact opposite Monday Night Raw. I mean, it's probably stupid, like not just in hindsight, but like in actual real time, probably pretty stupid when you already were building up a nice audience on your, I think it was Thursday nights at that point. You just stay right there and continue to grow your audience from there. But like to to get ballsy and think you got the kind of horses to go up against the name recognition of the WWE back then, nah, I, I think that was uh, pretty pretty silly. And I, honestly, I honestly think that the same thing would happen to AEW if they did go head to head with Raw. Uh, I don't think the numbers would be the same here because people are still very much creatures of habit, and it takes a lot to kind of break people from doing the things that they normally do. So right now, they need to focus on Wednesday nights, make Wednesdays another must-see wrestling night. And then once you feel like you've gotten strong enough, then you might be able to put one of your shows opposite uh, one of the WWE's top programs. You know, maybe you end up, well, I can't see it with a network TV because I don't think network TV is really craving pro wrestling like that. But you never know if you can grow your audience enough and demonstrate the ability to uh, make these TV networks happy, you might be able to get that on regular TV too or get a show on regular TV. But in the meantime, I think they need to just run their race, focus on growing their audience, and then you know, maybe they can revisit this idea of going to war with WWE. And honestly, I feel like it's a lot 
uh, of fan-driven type stuff because of the disillusionment and the erosion of the WWE fan base over the past couple of decades, you know. Um, but, you know, they're going to do what they're going to do. Just my two cents. What's good, everybody? I'm here with another edition of BK Talks. It's a pro wrestling-centric episode, and uh, as such, I'm going to do my little... 14 second disclaimer, I guess, uh, where um, I believe that pro wrestling is very polarized and very tribalistic. So anytime you hear opinions or see opinions from people, you almost assume that it's coming from some kind of bias, especially if it's critical. Uh, many people do self-identify as WWE fans or AEW fans, but me, I don't really identify as a uh, strict fan of any one company. I'm just a wrestling fan. I try to Stay on top of the different things that are happening uh, across the business as best as I can. And my opinions are my own and uh, not that of someone who is biased by any like or dislike. Uh, so with that said, I want to begin this episode. Over the weekend, well, let me first say I'm recording this on Monday, July 26th, just a little afternoon, Eastern time. Um, but over this weekend... Game Changer Wrestling, GCW, held its uh, two-night homecoming event. Uh, the headline, the headlining match of night one was the highly anticipated match between the former WWE superstar uh, known as Zack Ryder, uh, Mr. Matt Cardona, and he was challenging Nick Gage, the GCW heavyweight champion. Uh, Nick Gage has gained a lot of exposure recently. Uh, but prior to all this recent exposure, he was known as a uh, a legend in the hardcore deathmatch slash garbage wrestling, pick your term, because people kind of refer to it in different ways. Uh, legend in, in that, that scene, that deathmatch scene. Yeah, he recently... Had an episode of Dark Side of the Ring devoted to his life and career. And he will be, as of this recording, appearing on the next edition of uh, AEW Dynamite. Which I believe it's a, a special episode, like a special themed episode, Fight for the Fallen. And he will, bring in his, he will be bringing his uh, deathmatch style, uh, albeit you have to assume a much more tamed much more sanitized version of it uh, to AEW Dynamite uh, as he takes on Chris Jericho in the storyline, The Five Labors of Jericho. Um, he's going to be labor number two, uh, aka almost like a gauntlet, but that takes place over a span of a few weeks where Chris Jericho has to go through these different challenges in order to get his match against MJF. Uh, now, Back to Mr. Nick Gage. He gained a lot of uh, notoriety uh, recently due to that exposure on Dark Side of the Ring. A lot of more people who weren't very familiar with him became much more familiar with him. Uh, me personally, I've heard the name over the years, but since I have kind of dipped out of the hardcore style deathmatch wrestling, I really don't know a whole lot about him in his career. Like uh, there was a time period, like in my early in my, in my teenage years, in my early 20s, that I was really, really into all of this stuff. Uh, but, you know, really kind of fallen out of favor over the over the years. Um, 
not to the point where I want to see it banned or anything like that, but to the point where I don't view it the same way. Uh, I don't really gain the same level of enjoyment out of seeing uh, those kinds of matches now. Uh, but with that said, I did watch this match and it was pretty entertaining. Now, if you if you go into this match expecting a wrestling match, then you, you're kind of doing this thing wrong. Like you, you know what you're getting when you put uh, Matt Cardona in this environment with this rabid crowd against Nick Gage. This audience is going to expect blood and guts, not to use that term. But that's what they they're, they're gonna expect that you know, they they're gonna want to see people bleed they're gonna want to see people get hit with stuff they're gonna want to see especially with Nick Gage the pizza cutter because that's his his trademark weapon they're gonna want to see people fall through hard items and uh, that's you got that for the most part you you got exactly what you would expect it wasn't the bloodiest of the bloodiest uh, battles but they did bleed. Uh, it wasn't the worst types of things you could see in these types of matches, but it, it was still pretty physical. And in that, uh, Matt Cardona won the GCW Heavyweight Championship. Of course, it, like many pro wrestling matches of the modern era and even some in the past, it involved a lot of uh, you know, outside interference and all kinds of trickery. Um that it probably should have you know, been contested without it. But it happened for storyline purposes because on the next night, uh, I didn't watch the full event. I just saw the announcement. I, I kind of tuned into it late. But uh, on the very next night, they announced that there was going to be a War Games match in Chicago during the weekend of the all-out AEW all-out pay-per-view. Uh, so all that stuff happened during that main event match to lead us to the big GCW War Games match, and I'm 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 probably gonna buy that event, uh, even though I'm not into the hardcore stuff like that anymore because I think it's just storyline wise is very interesting. They they got themselves to that point, um, were able to build a hardcore match off off of that main event, and it makes sense storyline wise. And I'm, I don't know what was going on prior and why those guys what kind of uh, relationships those characters had with each other in GCW prior to that main event, because I don't follow GCW like that. But even as a novice, I was able to kind of understand that at least something was afoot. Like there was some kind of prior relationships or storyline stuff or you know things that tied them together. Uh, so I am interested in seeing that, and I'll likely buy that event when it happens. Um, now following the match, um, Matt Cardona, uh, got items pelted at him from the crowd. And, uh, it was a, it was a scene that you really don't see in pro wrestling often now, but you almost kind of have to expect with that crowd. Uh, Matt Cardona came in as an invader of sorts and he took away something that that crowd, uh, holds dear to them against someone that they, you know, have exalted to almost like a godlike status within uh, GCW, within that deathmatch community. So uh, he drew the heat. He drew really good heat, and I got to commend him for that. And he subjected himself to a style that, uh, for 15 years at least, 
he wasn't going to have to subject himself to. Um, coming off of that, that run, it was highly uh, visible. Uh, you know, had his moments here and there where he was, uh, you know, getting good TV time and stuff. But he was, a uh, you know, in the largest company in the in the world. For 15 years, and he didn't have to do these kinds of matches. Uh, I'm assuming it, he didn't have to do it now because I'm he probably made good money. But I gotta give him credit for trying to pursue his own creative interest. He found this storyline uh, of his liking, and now he has a little buzz about him, uh, based on this match and 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 the story that they're telling. So I'm I'm I'm, I'm not an anti Matt Cardona, Zack Ryder guy. And I'm happy that he's able to find something uh, that that's interesting uh, in wrestling right now. And that leads me to the post-match stuff. Well, not the post-match stuff, but an image that his uh, fiance, Chelsea Green. Chelsea Green is also a professional wrestler. Uh, but his fiance posted a series of pictures with the caption, Dr. Chelsea come through. The first image on the left, top left, would be Zack Ryder. Sorry, I keep calling him Zack Ryder. Matt Cardona uh, with like a gauze pad or some kind of bandage taped to his uh, left arm. And the next picture was like a bloody towel. It's on what appears to be a hotel room floor. Next would be bloody hotel sheets white sheets and a pillowcase bloodied on the bed and then the last would be a picture of all the common um, first aid type supplies that a person would be able to buy in a Dwayne Reed or a CVS or a Walgreens um, those are like the major drugstore chains that we got out here in Brooklyn well in New York in general but like uh, I live in Brooklyn so uh, those are the types of items you would find in Neosporin, gauze, tape, stuff like that. Uh, so, a lot of people had their own reactions to it. And before I give any reaction, I will say this. Because, you know, I know I fall into the same trap sometimes. We see limited pieces of information. We make our own assumptions and we have opinions based off of that. And sometimes we don't know the full story. And I'm going to willingly and admittedly state that I don't know the full story. I'm just basing my opinions off of the of, off of what I have seen and what I would theorize. And I'm going to give some reason for why I theorize the way that I do. Uh, and the first thing is this. Let me just lay out the the different types of responses that I've seen. So I've seen some favorable responses to, to the match and to the pictures and stuff where people are giving him his props, man. Like I gave him his props just now. He put himself through a lot of punishment that a man of his background probably doesn't have to do I'm giving him his props there. On the other hand, we've seen people criticize the couple for not, going to the ER and uh, opting to A, treated in a hotel room, which is probably not the most sterile environment to be doing any of that stuff, but it is what it is. If you're a wrestling fan of any real tenure and, and, 
have watched and heard stories, then you know this this kind of thing ain't really that uncommon. Like you know, we heard the stories as wrestling fans about Sabu wrestling with broken jaws or taping and super gluing cuts that are open. Like that's some wild stuff. That's something that no one, <laughs> no one with a, a sane mind would want to do. But he did it, and no one should be surprised when a wrestler opts to gut it out and tough it out. Um, uh, that said, the people who would push back would be right to say we don't know exactly what happened. Uh, but people are definitely saying that uh, you should have gone to the ER. It's, they're also saying that, hey, look at the bloody mess that you're leaving behind for hotel no, uh, hotel workers, the ho hotel housekeepers to clean up. And we all know hotel employees in general aren't really uh, the best paid. And I think the pandemic has also heightened people's awareness of hygiene and sanitary conditions and stuff like that and, and the possible spread of infections and diseases. Me, I work in a hospital um, just to be more, uh, I guess, not to lead anyone on. I'm not a doctor or a nurse. I do work in a, a position that does involve a lot of direct care, a lot of uh, direct patient contact. And uh, we're, we're taught about different precautions upon entering the hospital as employees. We've got to go through this orientation process and training and stuff like that. So you know about uh, infection control and how to handle certain items and stuff like that. So uh, I definitely feel like for the people who don't work in the medical uh, setting, uh, the pandemic has definitely heightened their awareness of things like that, uh, like especially the hand hygiene stuff that people kind of took for granted before the pandemic and became super aware of after or during, I should say, because we ain't we're not in any post pandemic time period right now. Uh, but back to the story uh, that I'm uh, trying to lay out. A lot of people are down on the couple for potentially exposing hospital workers, hospital, uh, hotel workers uh, to these types of uh, uh, conditions. And a lot of them are saying, I hope you left behind a big tip. And I'll also say this, to, not to play devil's advocate, but to highlight some of the, the dissenting view. Uh, I'm sure, um, especially in Atlantic City, I'm sure that these Hotel workers have encountered all kinds of weird, crazy conditions. It's not to say that they want to, and it's not to say that that uh, it's the most ideal, but I'm sure that they do have ways of handling these things. It, it does uh, potentially expose them to things, of course, if, if, if all the protocols aren't really followed to the T, it does kind of expose them to uh, risk and conditions that they wouldn't normally have in a typical room cleanup. Uh, but I'm, I'm sure they've seen some stuff that are kind of similar, uh, especially in Atlantic city, which is you know, a whole nother beast. Uh, uh, but the thing about the, 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 uh, whether or not they went to a hospital, I think that's a, a question that's kind of valid. Uh, but again, I, I'm making the assumption that they didn't, although, there's a chance that they could have and the cut opened up and rather than go back to the hospital, they just decided to try and uh, treat it themselves. Now you can 
they put it out there for the public to view and it's kind of unreasonable to not think that people wouldn't offer their opinions some of those opinions are going to be uh favorable towards you and uh, those other opinions are not going to be so favorable so when you put out a picture like that you almost kind of expect the worst because that's what we that's what we do right now <laughs> but uh so I'll give them the benefit of the doubt there. Uh, but my assumption is this. My assumption is that most of these hardcore wrestlers probably don't go. Because I've seen documentaries about hardcore wrestling in the past. And we've heard the stories about guys kind of doing the DIY, the do-it-yourself type medical care. Like where guys would get items stuck in them during a match. And they'll have another wrestler or someone backstage just pull that item out of them as opposed to going to the ER and getting the item pulled out or you know, wound care done with super glue, as I mentioned before. Uh, you know, those kinds of things happen. And again, it wouldn't be unreasonable for people to assume that Cardona and Chelsea decided hey, we're just going to take it back to the hotel. And in Atlantic City, I know of I know directly of one location of a Dwayne Reed because I've bought I've bought like a, a sunscreen and stuff there when I've gone to Atlantic City so there's definitely drugstores in the area where they could have gotten all those supplies so it's not unreasonable to to believe that they decided yo this ain't this doesn't look as bad uh I don't feel that bad let me just go ahead we're gonna get some neosporin we're gonna get some other stuff clean it out patch me up and I'll be good to go not unreasonable to believe that that's the mindset that they had. Um, but it does, all this talk and chatter does lead me to have like a larger overarching question about not GCW, uh, but just companies who put on these kinds of hardcore matches. Like what are the standards? What are the procedures? What are the regulations and guidelines? Because I don't believe that there is any real governing body that overlooks pro wrestling, like sports entertainment, because uh, it's not really pure sports. So I don't think sports commissions in the States really handle it. Maybe Maryland. I think that's probably one state because there was some controversy about the use of blood in an AEW pay-per-view, um, one of its early pay-per-views. Uh, but I don't know for a fact. So I'm, if anyone does know, uh, you know, that'd be helpful information to kind of disseminate and get out there. But what are what are the standards for having these kinds of matches? Are, I'm sure like every other uh, industry and rule, some states have more lenient standards than others, if there are any standards. Uh, but, yeah, what what would a company be required to do if they were going to hold an event where they knew that blood use was like blading and stuff like that was going to take place or there was a heightened chance of even accidental uh, cuts opening up. Uh, what is the policy for that? Like, here's my theory of what should probably happen and something that I don't think does happen. But I, I, I do feel like prior to an event where you can safely anticipate uh, safely, <laughs> safely and deathmatch don't really go together, but you can reasonably anticipate the use of blood or even incidental cutting. Uh, then maybe you should require the competitors to uh, 
uh, submit blood for like testing to make sure that neither com none of the competitors are infected with any kind of diseases or anything like that that could be transmissible through contact. Uh, I mean, the last thing you want to do is have a match and then you got, you know, guys wrestling each other and they catch something uh, based on that match. And then a lot of these matches do go into the crowd and you don't know uh, if the blood of the competitors gets on to a uh, fan attendance and that opens up a whole lot of possibilities there and legal trouble that you probably want to head off. So uh, I was wondering if companies take it upon themselves and i'm assuming that it's not the case that they don't for for smaller companies gcw is kind of in this gray area where they're not a big boy per se but they have a lot of visibility uh now uh that they probably wouldn't have had in years past um just through the internet you can get you can get your stuff out there way more um and they do have a very hardcore following um, but it, it would probably be cost prohibitive because I remember a while back when people were talking about GCW, uh, trademarks and stuff like that. And people were arguing, saying that, well, they probably don't have enough money to hire the attorneys to protect their creations and stuff like that, their, their names and stuff like that. Um, that would also lead me to believe that it's probably cost prohibitive, for them to institute these kinds of policies where you uh, require guys to get blood work done and you, cause that stuff you got to submit to the lab and, and if you, that stuff would add up depending on how many guys you have on the show and how frequently you use them, that, that kind of stuff would definitely add up, especially when you're paying guys to show up at these events and you're probably paying the transportation, um, you got to pay for the lighting if you're going to televise this event like on Fight TV or if you're going to record it to archive for sale later. Um, it's a lot, of, a lot of costs associated with running a wrestling company. Uh, I'm not sure how these guys get, get by, man. Um, but another thing I thought about, too, whether or not there's like almost this mandatory uh, thing where... These companies have a doctor and a nurse on hand, plus an ambulance company on standby uh, that can immediately take these guys to the ER after the matches. And I'm, I'm, I'm almost certain that it doesn't happen because of the hardcore nature of, the, of these guys. They're very, very tough. And short of them being incapacitated or unable to like walk off on their own, I don't think they would willingly go for open cuts or anything like that where in my amateur opinion of course um, I would theorize that they're very much uh, subjecting themselves to potential infection with the open cuts and the bleeding and stuff like that so on the safe side it might be better to go to an ER to get checked out and let them you know tell you hey you're good and then they'll give you a They'll always give you discharge instructions with follow up instruct dis with discharge instructions with follow up uh, guidelines and stuff like that. But uh, I don't think that happens either, man. Because that also those ER trips would be very very costly for a bunch of guys who likely don't have insurance, as uh, health insurance is one of the big debates that happen among fans uh, regarding pro wrestling. 
so I can see why more guys probably opt to just go home and do it themselves when they don't feel that bad. They'll pop some some painkillers if they have some pains. They'll you know buy the first aid supplies if they have some cuts that aren't like super super deep. And even in some of the cases of the super super deep cuts, maybe some of these guys still wouldn't go. Uh, just the mindset. These guys are very resilient, very uh, strong-minded people uh, who are willing to kind of gut through a lot of stuff that the average person likely wouldn't try to. But uh, yeah, this this thing definitely had me wondering about what kind of uh, safeguards are in place because although although we haven't heard any widespread reports of guys catching infections and stuff like that, that doesn't necessarily mean there aren't people catching infections. Um, like on one hand, I believe that if these guys are so tough and, and strong-minded, they're probably not going to come out and say, you know, if they caught anything and, uh, they don't want to. They don't want to hurt their bookings or their potential bookings by saying, "Hey, I got this," because then maybe you don't get put on a card with someone. And a lot of these guys probably don't know if they have anything because without the insurance, if you don't feel bad, you're probably not going in for checkups. You're not going in for routine blood work. You're probably not getting uh, uh, looked at as frequently as you should. I'm, and I'm speaking from my own personal uh, background and experience for the longest time. In my 20s, man, I did not really want to go to the doctor unless I was going to the ER or to the local clinic if I felt bad. Like if I felt like I might have a fever or a cold or something like that, a strong, not, not a cold, but like the flu or something like that, maybe I would go. But even in those cases, I'd probably go to the drugstore and buy like a Theraflu or some cold tablets or whatever to try and gut it out. Uh, there were very, very rare uh, uh, occurrences of me just outwardly going to the ER. And I'm not a hardcore wrestler. I just worked regular blue collar type jobs. So uh, I had a partially torn Achilles from pickup basketball back in like 2011 or 2012 that I didn't know was partially torn until three months later. Um, I played basketball on a weekend that Monday that it got hurt the same day, you know, limped up and down stairs, put on an ace bandage and went to work doing patrols in a, in a college, uh, campus limping around. And then the pain and everything like that kind of got to be a little bit too much. It didn't go away after like a couple of weeks, didn't go away after a month, didn't go away after two months. Three months later, I decided to go to the hospital. Well, not a hospital, to a, a doctor's office and x-rays and all that stuff, MRI or whatever, whatever radiology they had to do to, to check out the injury. And I find out, hey, man, you got a partially torn left Achilles. And I didn't go for any surgery or anything like that. To this day, never, never went for surgery. I can walk around pretty decently. Uh, I don't have the sprinting and the leaping ability that I once had in my younger years, but you know, I, I can function and, and do the things that I have to do. Uh, exercise, jog a little bit, you know, jump rope. I can still do, I, I'm still able to function. So me, not in that world and not with that same 
crazy mindset that, that these guys have. And when I say crazy, I'm not saying it in a negative uh, context, just saying that these guys are like strong willed. That's probably a better word. So I can imagine these guys are not really wanting to go to no ERs or or get checked out immediately after an event, especially if they can still walk around uh, on their own two feet. Um, but I think just as a precaution, as as wrestling fans have grown increasingly uh, aware of the different dangers that pro wrestling uh, have, as we see more and more wrestlers that we grew up with during the 80s and 90s, and even some guys in the 2000, early 2000s just kind of die of various uh, different reasons that could potentially be tied back to their wrestling careers. Um, yeah, I think it does make me uh, much more conscious of the things that can be put in place. Because like uh, the chair shot thing, man, back when I was watching wrestling in the 90s, uh, particularly ECW, man, guys were just getting blasted in the head. Uh, Mankind and McFo uh, Mankind and The Rock. That was a, a brutal match with their, uh, Mankind got Mick Foley got blasted in the head with the chairs. Like things that we took for granted back then, you don't really take those things for granted right now. Like even in the, in the social media thing, when you see video clips from an indie show where a guy gets cracked in the skull, the, the reaction isn't the way it used to be where like a lot of the shock and awe and amazement, it's like, yo, what are they doing? So I think eventually with some of the other aspects, they're going to, fans are going to ask questions or at least I'm going to ask questions about, Hey, what can we do to, if we're going to do this match style, which I'm never, I'm not going to call to be banned. What can we do to mitigate the risk for the wrestlers so that, you know, these guys can, have some reasonable level of protection and 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 care because uh, they're they're probably physically are gonna break down uh, with the repeated blows and stuff like that. Uh, but there's also this other side that you don't see. Uh, you can't see when someone has some kind of infection immediately uh, that's that's happening in their blood. Um, so at least we can try to offset some of that and, and give these guys a reasonable level of reassurance that the guy they're wrestling against and, and bleeding on and bleeding and having bleed on to them isn't also carrying some potential infections that they can have transmitted to them. And then and it opens up all kinds of, of doors that nobody really wants to go through. But uh, it just those are my two thoughts on uh, the uh, Matt Cardona. Nick Gage match and the Chelsea Green photos and the response that fans have had to those photos. I'm looking forward to uh, putting out another episode at some point this week. Uh, probably going to be another wrestling centric one because it's kind of fun to talk about topics like this.